Hey, welcome to the 1505 Club. Today, my guest is Dr. David Curry. Dr. Curry is the immediate past president of the Gonstead Clinical Studies Society and a Gonstead Fellow. In addition to continuing in private practice, he's an instructor at LifeWest College of Chiropractic and the founder of the Gonstead Adjusting Academy. Today, we're going to be talking about technique and what it takes to become a skilled adjuster. So without any further ado, Dr. David Curry. Thank you for joining us today. Hey, good morning. How are you? Very, very good. Could you start off by telling us a little bit about how you got into chiropractic and more specifically how you ended up in Gonstead Chiropractic? Sure. Uh, well, uh, for me, it started out, uh, uh, I was a uh, high school, uh, I graduated from high school, I should start out and say, uh, 1972. And uh, you may recall that was the end of the Vietnam War. So I was one of those unfortunates that got drafted into Vietnam right at the tail end of it. And uh, so in 1973, I found myself in the United States Army uh, with an M16 and a bayonet and a steel pot and some combat boots and a steel and a backpack and an infantry unit. And uh, with orders get, soon to go to Vietnam, uh, but, but pending uh, a decision by the President of the United States, which was Richard Nixon. And in January of 73, uh, he decided to call the war off. So I extended an extra year. Uh, long story short, I extended an extra year to stay out of Vietnam. Because, uh, you know, if you recall in Afghanistan, we were, the war was ended and we were still there, you know, and, and it really didn't end. Just a battle ended. And uh, so, anyway, so in that three years I was in the Army, um, being an infantry, I wasn't one of the toughest guys around. Uh, so I, I got advised by the, the, the uh, platoon sergeant says, you need to toughen up, young man, so we're going to teach you uh, how to fight. So we want to put you on the boxing club or the karate team, and which did you choose? And I looked at the guys in the boxing team. They had their noses pushed in, looked like their eyeballs all puffy and swollen. I said, and teeth not missing. I said, this doesn't sound good to me. And uh, karate was really popular. You may remember Bruce Lee and, and uh, Bill Wallace and, and uh, guys like that. So... So I joined the uh, karate team uh, in the Army, and uh, long story short, uh, three broken noses and uh, my front teeth pushed around. Uh, later, I earned my black belt before I got out of the Army. Uh, and the reason why I tell you that story is because uh, uh, I learned a lot about uh, commitment and uh, diligence and putting your head down. In the Army, we only had three belts, white, brown, and black, and um White brown uh, white belt uh, was a beginner, and, and the drill sergeant says, you know, you're going to be dead in the jungle in a few minutes, son. You can't take care of yourself when it comes to hand-to-hand -hand combat. And uh, a brown belt would, uh, when you reach that level, the, the, it was his decision, uh, the sensei there, uh, his decision that you could probably take care of yourself. And, and when you got to the point where you could probably take care of yourself and maybe somebody else next to you, they call you a black belt. So that's how we earned our black belt. And... Uh, uh, but uh, I learned about discipline, I learned about uh, work ethic, and I learned about drills and putting my head together. So I tell you that story because when I got out of the Army and started college, I went to local junior college, uh, Chabot College here in Hayward, uh, California, and uh, I was a walk-on to the baseball team, and I made the baseball team as a walk-on player at age 22. 
Uh, and uh, immediately, uh, you know, coach asked me, "Well, what do you what do you play?" And I said, "Well, I'm a pitcher. I can throw as hard as anybody else. And I'm 22 years old. I was a grown man. I can do push-ups and run faster than anybody else." <laughs> so he liked my influence. And besides that, I had short hair, and everybody else had long hairs and afros. <laughs> <laughs> um, so anyway, um, I made the baseball team. I didn't get to play much my first year. My second year, uh, I pitched a lot in the off season uh, in the local amateur leagues. And uh, I learned my skill as a pitcher uh, in, that, in that interim. My second year at Chabot, I was uh, in line to be one of the starting pitchers. And uh, I ended up uh, having an elbow problem. So I changed my delivery to a little more sidearm, uh, kind of almost underhanded uh, throwing. And uh, I hurt my shoulder, reaching out real hard to throw a, a curveball. And uh, I was told by the team doctor I had a torn rotator cuff and I needed surgery. Well, the end of that story was that uh, my dad uh, had been seeing a chiropractor in town, Castro Valley, and uh, he was a godsend doc. And he told me uh, that there was some kids in his uh, chiropractor's office that was seeing a chiropractor, and uh, maybe I should try that out before I tried surgery. And uh, so, so I went and saw this chiropractor, and the, and the upside of that was he thought that I had a pinched nerve in my upper back and neck, and, and uh, that was the root of my problem with my shoulder. And uh, so he worked on my upper back and my neck. I ended up playing uh, amateur baseball. We called it semi-pro then uh, that summer uh, after that. And I played with Ricky Henderson, uh, Lloyd Mosby, and Gary Pettis. I'm sure you know who Ricky Henderson is. I'm old enough to know who they are. (laughs) Yeah, I played with all three of those guys uh, when they got signed. Uh, They all got signed within a year of each other. But uh, uh, so that that was a wake-up call for me. And I told my buddy at uh, uh, that I grew up with playing Little League Baseball, uh, Mitch Sill, I told him, I said, you know, you know, we want to be MDs. Um, we were in school to be medical doctors at the time. And I told him, I'm going to be a real doctor now. And he laughed and I said, yeah, no, I think I'm going to be a chiropractor. <laughs> so that was how we got introduced to chiropractic. So we both started looking at chiropractic and, and uh, we looked at different colleges. There were no colleges in the Bay Area yet at the time. Uh, so we looked at LACC and, and uh, decided that that wasn't where we wanted to go. Uh, another mutual friend, Dr. Annette Steve Coe, uh, uh, was a student at the time with us. Uh, we were all three looking at chiropractic. She decided to go up to Portland, Oregon, uh, and then we decided to go back to Iowa. And uh, that was a, to Davenport, and that was because of the Palmer name. Well, the funny thing was, so we got into Palmer, and we married our girlfriends, both of us. I was in his wedding. He was in my wedding. We married our girlfriends, and the four of us moved out to Davenport, and we found there was a California club in, in, uh, in Davenport. Uh, but I started chiropractic college on an infamous day. It was October 3rd, 1978. Now, I, I tell you the significance of that day is not because it's my first day in chiropractic college, but it was the day after Dr. Gonsted died. Hmm. So Dr. Gonsted died the day before. So our first day in chiropractic college here we're all excited about, you know, we're going to be here. This is the Palmers. We're walking around the campus. We're seeing all these things on the wall of these famous sayings from BJ and so forth and so on. And we're so excited. And, and everybody, oh, Gunstead died. <laughs> we thought, Who's this Gunstead guy? Well, somebody we met in the, guns, in the uh, California club um, told us a little bit about who he was and that there was a uh, uh, a couple of buses that they had chartered to take some students to the to the first Gunsett seminar in Wisconsin in November of 1978, right after he died. We got on that bus, and we got the last two seats on that bus. We drove up to Mount Horeb, and we arrived at like 
I don't know, it was like seven, eight o'clock at night, but it was dark. In November, it was dark outside. And uh, first thing we noticed, we, we walked in the reception area, it was packed full of patients. I mean, packed full of patients, like a bus station. You, you and I have been there many times. And, and uh, so we were immediately impressed. We started looking at all these people, and uh, they were walking around with with uh, walkers and old people. There were people who looked like they could hardly stand up. There were babies in there uh, and people in wheelchairs. And so uh, anyway, we, we attended the seminar and a workshop. And at the end of the workshop, we were very well impressed that this was this was the real deal. So we, we started looking at the Gonset work right then. And it went back to Palmer and uh, in between first and second quarter, we had a chance to, to take a little, you know, one day workshop with a guy that was just graduating or had just graduated. And he taught us everything we needed to know about diversified in one day. So at the end of one day, we could adjust everything. Now, keep in mind at Palmer in those days, you didn't have to have, you know, have organic chemistry it was taught in first quarter. So we had we didn't even have spinal anatomy yet. We didn't know what a spinous process was, what a, a sacral neck joint was, what an atlas vertebra. We knew none of that. But we knew how to adjust everything from an atlas to a PI ileum at least two ways and diversified. And we mastered it. We went home at the end of that 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 one day uh, and we started cracking our, our wives' backs and necks. And, and uh, we were cranking it on the right and cranking it on the left. We knew how to find nodules. We knew all this really cool stuff. We went back to the first day of second quarter and we're telling all our classmates, man, we can adjust. We're really in, you know. Meanwhile, we thought back in our brains, why do I need to come here for three years in chiropractic college if I already know how to do the deal? <laughs> but we, in the back of our mind, that, that thought occurred to us, but we could adjust. So we were cracking our wives' backs and we were finding sore spots and pushing them down to high spots and turning them and, you know, extension, lateral bending and rotation, and we could do that. But we went back to another Gonset seminar in December. So we had two Gonset seminars under our belt by this time. Then we went to a, a, a sorry, a second seminar was in January because they were every other month in, in, in Mount Horeb. And we started seeing a little more of the guns and it's got more serious. Then I got introduced to Dr. Larry Troxel. And Troxel had an intern program at the time. So we went out to the Troxel Clinic and, and they got introduced to him uh, in his workshop. And we're learning more guns and this was local. So we didn't have to wait for every other month to go to a seminar. And uh, we recognized right away that the, the single most difficult thing to learn was going to be cervical chair. So I, I had, I told, now, now we finished second quarter and a first day in third quarter, I, I, I just boldly came up to my buddy Mitzel and I said, dude, I am going to master cervical chair and I'm going to master cervical chair this quarter. This is my first day in third quarter. And he laughed like a hyena. You know, we played Little League Baseball together, right? So two kids, and we used to push each other and poke each other when we were little kids. And he's laughing at me. And then then, then we had dinner together with our wives after our first day in third quarter. And he laughed. And he says, hey, Dave, tell our wives what you're going to do, man. And I says, I told Mitch I'm going to master cervical chair, and I'm going to do it before the end of this quarter. Now I'm committed. I'm committed. <laughs> The key to success, commitment, right? I was committed and I was too embarrassed not to succeed. So I went on a task of making sure that I mastered cervical chair. And I'm, I'm going to tell you straight out, by the time we finished the third quarter, I could adjust anybody I put my hands on a cervical chair down to T1. From, from a C2 to T1, I, can, I couldn't do Atlas Rocks yet. But I mastered that. So 
I became the president of the Gansai Club, and uh, I, I was the Gansai Club president all the way through, most of the rest of the way through chiropractic college. Uh, we had some really great people in school at the time. Denny O'Hara was uh, one quarter behind us. John Cox was two uh, three quarters behind me. And so we had some really great Gansai docs uh, in school at the time. Uh, but uh, but that's how I got introduced to the Gansai work. Uh, it was quite by accident. I had, didn't have a plan for Gansai. Although I recognized right away when we were getting uh, learning the Gonset work that my doc that fixed me was a Gonset doc. <laughs> mm-hmm. He's deceased and, and uh, moved on uh, to heaven now. But, uh, but anyway, that's how I got introduced to the Gonset work and and, uh, and chiropractic. That's great. I, I always enjoy listening to different people's stories because we come from such different places sometimes, and yet we all end up in the same place. And so it, yeah, you know, it's, it's just funny how that always happens. It's incredible. Um, so today I wanted to talk a lot about technique because you teach technique at Life West and I teach technique at, we'll call it Life East. Yes. <laughs> <Keep them apart>. yes. <laughs> um, <laughs> and uh, and I, I, I noticed that there's some unique things that I would not have guessed until I started teaching in that aspect. Um, and so I thought we could hit on some things that we have in common that a lot of other people wouldn't really see because they don't see both sides of that fence. Um, and I think it can be beneficial for people who are still trying to learn and master their technique. Um, one of the things that um, Dr. Deborah said to me when I first started, and she said, because you have 20 years of experience, you'll be a better teacher than most. But once you start teaching, you'll find that teaching makes you a better clinician. And I found that to be 100% true. Uh, so Absolutely. Far. Is that what you found as well? I that once you got completely agree. Yeah, completely agree. You know, I, okay, so, so quite honestly, I, I, I thought like before I started teaching, at, and I, by the way, I've taught I've taught my whole entire career, and I graduated in uh, October third, nineteen eighty-one. So, if you can imagine, I'm a couple, I'm two days away from forty years of graduation. Uh, but, uh, but I started teaching in chiropractic school for two and a half years. I was teaching in front of the Gonsai Club, uh, and then what happened is I came out to California. I just want to share this with you real quick. Uh, I came to California, and I and I looked for the most incredible Gonsai doc I could learn from, and that was Richard Thornton. Uh, he was the first president of GCSS, as you know. He and uh, Tom Sherman had great influence on me. I would say Richard Thornton had probably the single most uh, greatest influence of anyone. Uh, and, I, and I owe my chiropractic soul to him. Uh, but I, I practiced with Richard and uh, for a year. And then I opened my own practice in 1982 in Fremont. And uh, I found out that uh, uh, what was originally Pacific States Chiropractic College had split into two different co- uh, colleges, and uh, uh, Life had taken over the, what was to become Life West, and Palmer decided they wanted to have a West Coast uh, co- uh, campus as well. So they took over the West Coast place. And so, anyway, when I heard about that, and I'm struggling to begin in, in the beginning of my practice, I thought, gee, I could use some extra cash on the side, and I didn't want to really want to work at Safeway or something like that. So. So I, I talked to Dr. Henry Schull, who was the uh, one of our philosophy teachers in Davenport. He was the one they sent out from Davenport to run the technique department. And he and I knew each other quite well because I was really into philosophy when we were students. Um, I talked to him and I asked him if, if, uh, if he could use me at the college. And he says, absolutely, a young guy. And he says, but we can't call it Gonstead. You can teach, you teach your work, but just don't call it Gonstead. <laughs> And it's seated cervicals, it's side posture, it's pelvic bench, it's knee chest, but don't call it gunset. We don't want to put names on it. 
So anyway, I taught the very first cervical adjusting course at what is now called Palmer West. I created the course. I taught the course. We weren't allowed to call anything by name. And then what ended up happening is, is I talked Dr. Shulman to allowed me to create an elective. So I created a Godson elective course uh, there. And uh, that was, so I've been teaching chiropractic college in the chiropractic college since 1982. I taught for two and a half years, a little over two years there. And then I just got too busy in practice and ended up having to leave the college. I taught a second time when I was going through a divorce and I thought I was going to have to be out of practice. I didn't want to leave California. I taught another two and a half years or so. That was in the late 90s, mid to late 90s. And then uh, I retired from practice in 2000, full-time practice in 2011. I retired, yeah. <laughs> yeah. We're all so, pretty bad at retiring. <laughs> yeah, yeah. So I, 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 I literally took a, a practice that was, I had one of the busiest practices in the country. I don't mind saying that. Um, I had, you know, two associates usually, sometimes three. Uh, massage therapists. I had an acupuncturist in for most of my career, multi-discipline practice. And uh, they did their thing. We did our thing. And uh, But I, I literally gave a 30-year practice to another colleague um, because I, I tried selling the practice starting in 2008. And if you remember what happened in the economy, uh, 2011, I, three years later, I couldn't sell the practice. Nobody had money. So I just, I, I got I got tired of thinking about it and I just gave my, my 30 year practice to another uh, chiropractor. Anyway, the long and the short of that, I'm, I'm only sharing this with you to tell you how I got to the life West. Uh, so I retired from full-time practice, moved across the Bay to foster city, California. And, uh, and my patients kept finding me on my cell phone and contacting me. So, so shortly after that, I ended up opening up a second, a, a small office I discovered that chiropractic could be a lot more fun if I didn't have twenty to thirty thousand dollars a month in overhead, which when you have employees, twenty to thirty thousand dollars a month in overhead is not un unusual in California. And this is eighties and nineties money, right? But now I found out that having just one small adjusting room and one set of equipment, uh, I could I could make more money hour by hour for what I do. I'd have a whole lot less stress and not have the practice volume. So that's how I got back into practice. Then, and I was sort of I spent about a year from 2011 to 2012 trying to figure out what to do, uh, but I missed chiropractic terribly. And so I got back into practice. Uh, and so, and I ended up back in Fremont, uh, opening up a small office there. I got hired at Life West in uh, 2014, and in one quarter, I, I, I got uh, as an adjunct, which is uh, part-time. Uh, I ended up being offered a full-time position. I just happened to be there at the right place at the right time, quite honestly. And so I've been full-time uh, since, since uh, summer of 2014 at Life West. So with that said, uh, I, you know, I've, I've learned a lot about coaching and teaching, uh, and, and I will tell you, Honestly, I thought I was a, a pretty darn good chiropractor. My technique-wise was was pretty pretty sharp, but you're right, and Dr. Devers is absolutely correct. When I started teaching, I suddenly had to describe everything. I had to get very meticulous about mm -hmm. how to do things, and and uh, I'm I'm not an easy learner to learn things myself the first time. Uh, but once I once I found out that other people were just as difficult to learn new things as I was, I had to learn. Wait a minute, what did I do to earn black belt in three years? What did I do to master cervical chair in 90 days? And I, and, I, and I started learning about discipline, about breaking things down into its elements. 
and and I, and I started coaching and teaching that way. Now, teaching at the college, we have a we have a box that we have to live in. We have to make it a, a college course. It's yes. got to be. I've got to create a test. Yeah. <laughs> We've got to teach it the way everybody else does because the college expects that, even though I might think I have a better way. Right. But when we do per- so, so I live in two worlds in teaching, Dave, and, and I'm sure you realize this yourself too. When we teach at the college, we teach fundamentally the same way that everybody else does in chiropractic college. Basic setup, give you an exam, put you under high stress to learn chiropractic. But when I do coaching, which is, you know, away from the college, outside of the college environment, I can put my hands around somebody and love them and look at them right in the eye and say, hey, we need to do this a little differently with you because the way it works for everybody else in the box that we create for everybody else, it'll work better for you if we do this or this or that. So I just wanted to give that as a background and, and, and acknowledge the fact that what you and Dr. David had said is, yes, I'm a much better chiropractor as, since I've become a teacher than I was before. And then is that better being, being a better chiropractor in practice plays out, it makes you a better teacher. And the two just kind of feed each other. And Absolutely. I think that to whatever degree people can, even early on, they should start trying to teach something. For me, it was as club vice president. I did a lot of teaching in school and I did it knowing that I probably was a terrible teacher, but I was going to benefit from teaching. <laughs> teaching. So maybe it was a little selfish, but I was teaching and doing the best I could, but knowing that it probably wasn't the best they could get, but it was something and they could get it regularly. But it really grew me because it forced me to read the chapters and it forced me to try to take concepts and make them make sense. And it, it just pushed that whole element of it. So um, I think the other thing I've seen, and I've seen this a lot in class because when we have students in our class, we have Gonstead students in our classes and we have non-Gonstead students in our classes. Yeah. And it seems like where they run into roadblocks are at two different places. And so yeah. it's almost like the first stepping stone because what have the Gonstead students done? They've used club and they've used extra practice to get past the first stepping stone, which is developing muscle coordination and skill, even if yeah. they can't do the job. And then the people who are new to Gonstead are like, I don't even know where to put my hand and you can just see the uncoordination. And so it's teaching that aspect of it. So I think that's the first step is if you can get to where you're semi-coordinated, even if you're not getting it done, you've overcome the first hurdle. Is that kind of what you see? Exactly. And you know what, you, you, you to say it differently, but, but exactly the same thing is that we have students in, in our classroom at the college, some who can't, can't wait for the next, next thing they're going to learn. Uh, Cause they just love Gonset and they, they really want to do it. And we have students who have already made their mind up that they hate Gonset before they ever, ever beat us. And because we represent Gonset, they immediately hate us and they got daggers in their eyes and throwing, you know, <laughs> and, and I don't think they even really realize that, but some of them just, they just can't wait to finish the course uh, and, and get it past them and, and go on to whatever else they're going to do. And, and, uh, and you know what, we have to love them just as much as we love the ones who really want to be there. Yeah. Yeah, it was funny. Dr. Tomasello and I were co-teaching a class one time and we had a student like that. And he just started laughing. He's like, between the two of us, you've got like 50 years of Gonstead practice experience and you're not even graduated yet. Like, do you yeah. really want to have this conversation? So <laughs> <laughs> it's just fun. but you're right. There's it's like they're so set on it. And that's that's something we see from school. Um one of the um Somebody, somebody that I know from life, she made the statement. I thought it was really good. She said, you know, when you're young in school, people are coming at you and they're trying to get you to swear your allegiance to them. And I was like, that is so it. It's because you don't have any experience to draw on. They want you to swear your allegiance. And I'm like, you know, that's the thing with Gonstead is 
I'm, you don't have to swear your allegiance to anything. It's more like, let's make this make sense. And if it makes sense, then let's do it. And if it doesn't make sense, let's make it make more sense. And so I've always felt like Gonstead isn't really like this cultish closed box system. Gonstead is more of like, let's use the science. And as we learn more, let's constantly change and evolve. And we are both very much involved in that process of let's change and evolve. But I don't think we're really married to any concept. If, if we suddenly had science that said that this doesn't work and this works better, well, then we're going to take what works better. Absolutely. Yeah. Uh, um, in fact, with the meeting of the minds coming up, that's really what the meeting of the minds is all about is diving into certain topics and saying, how could we be doing this better? How could we be doing this differently? Um, and trying to come to a better consensus of what we can do to make what we do better. Not, not some kind of religious adherence to, well, this is what, this is what Dr. Gonsa did in 1962. So we're going to do it exactly that way till the end of time. We don't really do that. Yeah. Well, that's what I love about, about GCSS and, and, and GMI is, and I'll say Gonsa similar too, is that, you know, we're, we are evolving. Dr. Gonsa died in 1978 and he left us with a great legacies and a great core uh, some incredible principles, and for the most part, they haven't changed. Uh, but we have learned some things since 1978. We've got the internet now. We can share thoughts and ideas. We've got video that we didn't have before. Um, yeah, we've learned a lot, and, and I completely agree. I, I, that's why I greatly appreciate Dr. Charlie Martin, who started the uh, uh, the uh, Meeting of the Minds program, because uh, you know this year it's the immune system. A few years ago uh, at Life University, we had... Uh, 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 functional neurology and the Gonset paradigm. Uh, and we talked about, you know, how does functional neurology affect what we do in Gonset? And, and can we, can we, you know, make ourselves vulnerable to something new to, to that? But we've got a textbook, you know, we've got the chapters, we've got a textbook, unlike most techniques, they don't have a textbook, we have a textbook. And uh, well, the textbook has, you know, we, we've learned a few things since the textbook was created in the 70s, the 60s and 70s. And and some of the chapters, as you know, were, were actually published after Gonsa died. Mm-hmm. You know, uh, although you know Dr. Gonsa was responsible for those chapters, uh, but uh, it's it's really great to see that that we we have a core, and we're willing to learn and grow with science. That's 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 really powerful. Yeah, and then with the Purple Book, we basically have a book saying, "Here's all the su- science that supports what we do. These aren't just like." preferences and things we like to do or hypotheses like there's actual science to support what we do and why we do it the way we do it you know can can i say something too doctor uh dave is uh one of the things that i i've i really really am very uh, pleased with with the gunson work is that we 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 thrive on fundamentals we thrive Mm -hmm. on basics we thrive on on real findings not something that you know like I'll just give one example, and, I'm, and, and we're not here to badmouth any other technique. We're only we're here to talk about what we do, right? And 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 that's mm-hmm. that was what I heard when I was a student. You go up to Gunson seminars and, and listen to Dr. Troxell. It wasn't bashing this technique or that technique. It's this is what we do. But what what I what I appreciate what we do is that we stick with fundamentals in our analysis system. We stick to things like visualization static palpation, things we really can touch and feel and see. It's tangible. They're real mm-hmm. findings. They're not something made up, and, and it's only in chiropractic where we hear words like cervical nodules. <laughs> I mean, <laughs> if, I, if, I was, if I put my put my hat on finding subluxations by palpating somebody's neck and feeling a nodule, 
I mean, do a Google search, look up the word cervical nodule, and you will find nothing in there in any medical terminology about cervical nodule. You'll find about lymph nodes, okay, cancerous lymph nodes. That's what that, that's, see, we're the only ones who, who, who adhere to, to ridiculous concepts like, I feel a nodule, so therefore I'm going to punch this vertebra from here to there. We're also the only profession that t- talks about a short leg becoming long, and that's really significant. And again, I'm not here to badmouth, but if I can't understand it, I can't, I can't, and if it's not, if it doesn't make reasonable common sense, I can't adhere to it and I can't use it. Things like motion palpation, if the patient doesn't bend to the right, I need to make them bend better to the right. If they don't turn to the left, I need to make their head turn better to the left. That's reasonable. That makes sense. The, the fundamentals of inflammation, redness, swelling, heat, or pain, rubber tumor, color, dolor. You know, if we can see inflammation, if we can touch inflammation, if we can visually, uh, if we can use an instrument to measure inflammation, we've got a tool. We've got tools that are, that are, that withstood the test of time, and and uh, you know, I've I've appeared as an expert witness in court many times on both my patients and on other people's patients, testifying about real findings. And I, I'm sorry, I can't understand these findings in other doctors' records because they talk about you know, a Deerfield test or something. I just can't understand that. And just because they say this does that and it means that, that this, that, you know, that's just memorizing some little sequence of, of events. To mm-hmm. me, that's not, that's not, that's not, that's not powerful enough. That's not strong enough for me. Mm-hmm. I, I really, but when I, when, when I, when I can, when I can look at an x-ray and I can see the misalignment, I can touch the patient, I can, I can feel the edema, I can feel the muscle spasm, I know that these are real findings, and these are something that I can I can hang my hat on and feel comfortable about. I can talk to my patients, I can talk to their family, I can talk to their lawyers, uh, with great confidence that, that I've done I've found some real problems. Yeah, you know that's one of the reasons why I love um, static in motion palpation so much because on a patient, take the SI joint, it's a big long joint, and we know based on the misalignment, it may swell at the top, it may swell at the bottom, it might swell in the middle, and when you palpate it and you feel that differentiation. You can, the patient feels you glide the whole joint and then you can poke and be like, it hurts right there, doesn't it? Yes, but not down here and not over here, just right there. And right. you've already got it. And so it's, I have a finding, but it's a finding that they feel as well. So it's objective for both of us. And they know there's a problem and I know there's a problem. And then after you correct it, you can come back to it. It's gone. It doesn't hurt. Yes. And we made a change and I can objectively evaluate that along with visualization as well. If they're like, when they have ex ilium and they're, they're sitting on the pelvic chair or a cervical chair, and you can see that they're torqued, then they come back and sit and they're straight. I can objectively see that we're making changes and see how they stand. So that objective that's not just for me, but it's also for them too. We both concur that we see the, and witness the same thing. I like that part of it. You put, you hit on something very very powerful, and and that is this. You know you know we what I'm so happy with is that uh, when we train ourselves, we train our students. You examine a patient. Just being able to say they have edema on the sacroiliac is a, is a good finding. But a great finding is where is the edema? Is it at the top of the joint? Is it the bottom of the joint? You hit right on it. Or is it the middle of the joint, the entire joint? Because mm-hmm. if they find out exactly where the edema is, you know, we know a PI subluxation occurs at the top of the joint. So if they have edema and they have point tenderness and they have a joint motion restriction at the top of the joint, that's a pretty strong finding, very, very strong finding that would make me think this patient's got a PI ilium. Uh, but if but if I'm if I'm looking at someone and saying 
all my tests indicate that the patient has a, an ileum problem and it's a, always a PI. I'm like, really? That's just not enough for me. I, I need to, there's more to the subluxation of the pelvis than just a simple PI. Yeah, I, again, not to bash on you, but even within the on-state community, I've seen chiropractors where if you watch them for a day, you'll find them adjusting the exact same things over and over and over and over. And you're like, not every patient has a PR sacrum. Not every patient has a C7, <laughs> PRS, PLS. Like, there should be some other findings. You should be doing different things on different people. Um, and it's true. So how would you come to that? You've got to have data, and it's got to be valuable data that you can interpret that actually leads you in this direction versus that direction with a rationale behind it. And of course, that's hard to learn and hard to figure out. It takes years. But as it becomes gathered in your brain in this like repository, you start seeing patients where you're like, I know what that is <laughs> as soon as you yeah. see it. So it, it, it does work in the long run. Well, you know, the thing is, too, that, uh, you know, I think probably of everything that Dr. said left us with, the single most important, precious thing that he left us with was our mantra. Find the patient's problem, accept where you find it, correct what you found, and then learn when to leave it alone. And of all of that, the, the last one is probably, that's the part you got to get some experience with, you know, knowing when to leave it alone. Yeah. Uh, but, uh, you know, the, 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 the basics of finding subluxations, I mean, quite honestly, I think that is, that is, the, that is what sets us, uh, our, our work so superior to anything else I've ever seen, is our ability to find the patient's problem. Yeah. And, you know, even after all this time, I'll admit, when we were at the extravaganza, I get a text message from my associate that, hey, you know, so-and-so, basically, in the end, I had adjusted her one time too many. And I, even when I did it, I thought, no, but she really wanted it. And I, and I debated back and forth, and then I did it. And as soon as I saw the text message, I was like, idiot, why did you do that? So it's a mistake you still make. And then I came back and I told her, I said, I'm never falling for that again. We're not doing that anymore. So it's been good ever since. And I was able to fix her quickly, hopefully, thankfully, and get it back to where it belongs. But it's a mistake that you still make from time to time, just hopefully not as often. And there's a lot of things like that, that there's these delicate balances that we're trying to walk and, and your instincts tell you as much as they can tell you. But once in a while, you can still get it wrong and you try to learn from it. Exactly. Uh, every every patient is a, a new opportunity to learn something. Um, so then when we get into, we get more into technique and trying to do this thing, it seems to me that one of the biggest obstacles students have, and this doesn't matter how long they've, pre how long they've done it, how long they, or if it's brand new, um, they struggle tremendously with proper stabilization. Yes. That seems to be the biggest problem that, that people suffer with. Um, is that something you work with in your class? And what kind of tips do you give them to try to improve that stabilization early on? Well, you, you, you well, I'll tell you, you hit on a, on a huge, huge point there. And, and uh, it's, it's great. It's so wonderful to be able to collaborate with a colleague, especially another Gunson colleague teaching uh, technique, because you're right. Stabilization is everything. I think, um, uh, you know, the, the principles of adjusting are, you know, I mean, this, this is the principles of adjusting, whether it's Gunson or any other, any other technique is number one, creating shear. So to create shear, we need to be able to move one body part, but the other body part doesn't move, right? Mm -hmm. I mean, that's that from, from a biomechanics definition, that's what shear is all about. So in, in order to do that, it, like for instance, in cervical chair, if we're pushing the spine P to A, we need to be able to hold the patient's spine from A to P. Otherwise, nothing happens. If both of our hands go P to A, our stabilization hand goes in the same direction. <laughs> yeah, exactly. I see your image. 
you know, the body goes forward and nothing happens. But if you can set the vertebra forward that you're contacting and hold the rest of the spine still, uh, that's, that's stabilization. And uh, another key thing I find is that learning how to, uh, how to open the particular joint up in the direction you're trying to make the correction. So, for instance, if we're trying to adjust P to A, it makes no sense to open up the posterior joint motor unit. In other words, open up the facets. So to make that real and practical, uh, we, see, we see two different ways of adjusting the lumbars. Uh, I'll call it the diversified way and the Gonsid way, just for, just for conversation. And again, I'm not trying to bash diversified. But the diversified way is that the, you bring the patient's knee up to their chest to adjust the lumbar, and you take the patient to what they call tension, right? And uh, both those concepts are very different than what we're doing in Gonsid. It looks to the casual observer like it's the same, but in Gonsid, we don't want to bring the patient's knee up towards the chest because when you bring the knee up towards the chest, you're opening up the facets, but you're pinching down and closing down the discs on the anterior. So we would do exactly the opposite. Leave the, knee, leave the leg in a neutral position and push the spine P to A with our contact hand to create the opening of the disc space in the front. And we do that in a ramping up mechanism. So we slowly take the, the pressure forward. And once it stops moving, then we deliver that final thrust. So, so that's a very different concept than adjusting attention. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Um, so I had a student at Life that she was, she had done her exam, was supposed to be adjusting her patient. Her patient was actually complaining of a neck issue. She does the adjustment. She adjusts probably two or three times, doesn't get anything. She's getting frustrated. And you can tell, I was sitting in front, I could tell he's starting to get into pain. And so he's at this point of, I really need this to move. I really want this to move, but I'm not sure I can handle you doing it another time because it's really starting to hurt. So I saw what she was doing and I said, okay, do exactly what you just did, except I'm going to change one thing. And so she set up and I took my hand and I put it over her stabilization hand and I pushed. I said, now do exactly what you just did. And it moved beautifully. So she's all ecstatic. And I said, what I want you to understand is that you were 95% correct. The 5% you were missing was a little more stabilization, a little bit better angle, a little bit better, a little bit better line of correction for your stabilization hand. And I said, if you would have started changing things, thinking that you were way off, you would have only taken yourself further away from where you needed to be. You didn't need to change anything else. And I think there's a lot of students that probably feel that way. They're frustrated with their cervicals because they don't get it, as they like to say. Um, it didn't move. I didn't make a cavitation. And yet what they don't realize is that they're 95, 96, 97% of the way there. And the little tiny thing they're missing is probably something that they don't even know they're missing. And that's why they're missing it. Um, and I see that a lot, especially as Gonset students come to my class. It's like little tweaks here and there will get you there. Right. Well, you know, the other thing too is uh, um, I think that if we could share with our audience uh, two, two, you know, teachers and instructors in chiropractic college, I think probably, and I'd really love to hear your, your thoughts on this. We can teach our, our, our students to learn to, to get away from adjusting your patient at tension and adjust your patient more in a relaxed posture. Uh, adjusting attention and re- adjusting it relaxed is actually very different. It's, it's, it's exactly the opposite in, in a lot of ways. So the difference is when you adjust attention, you've got your body tense, you've got the patient's body tense, and then you just apply a force in pretty much any direction, any, any way you apply it, something's going to cavitate, something's going to give. And it might be the facets, and you hear that, that shotgun sound, you know, as the cervical spine starts to move. Uh, or you can hear that move, 
you know, Gunson mm-hmm. called it the, the whippetucker, right? One one good clunk. Uh, so I, I think for I'm talking about cervical chair, the perfect cervical chair adjustment would be like a warm knife and butter. Mm-hmm. You know, you slowly ramp up to where the vertebra is ready to get set, and as soon as the vertebra stops, then you apply the thrust. Boom! It's an impulse. So you slowly build up. It's ramping, building up to that, and uh, so if, you know, I'm never impressed when I see somebody do a cervical chair adjustment and I see their head with their ear per, towards the patient's shoulder okay. in excessive lateral bending. I'm, I'm 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 absolutely adamant that when they have the head turning, that's not what we're up to. We're not trying to turn the vertebra. The joints of Lushko stop the rotation, right? So, so mm-hmm. cervical vertebrae are designed to go P to A. They're not designed to turn. Uh, it's absolutely anatomically impossible to have a, a PR on, on one vertebra and a PL on the next vertebra in the cervicals, two adjacent vertebrae. It's absolutely anatomically impossible. So if you think you got a C2 PR and a C3 PL, just know you're wrong. <laughs> anatomically yeah. impossible. The joints of Wushka will not allow that to happen. Uh, that, that happens maybe C2 to the right and C6 to the left, certainly, but not C, not two adjacent vertebrae. That's not going to happen. But anyway, uh, I, I, I do think that uh, uh, being relaxed and slowly ramping up and opening the joint up is, is a key to adjusting uh, versus taking the patient. We, we were taught in, at Palmer three-point tension, extension tension, lateral bending tension, and rotation tension, and then just turn it a little bit more. That's the way we were taught and diversified at, at, uh, at Palmer uh, back when I was in school. We wouldn't want someone to do uh, gun set adjustments like that, not mm-hmm. at all. Mm-hmm. No. no, it's actually hunting for that neutrality. Um, yeah, the, uh, I, I agree. Um, I can't tell you how many students. So my class, my Gone State class, is a is it's core curriculum, but it's a tenth quarter class. So my students typically are already in clinic uh, when they take Gone State, and I can't tell you how many of them at the end of class have told me over the last several quarters, why don't they teach us this at the beginning of the curriculum? Um, huh before they teach us diversify. And I was like, that decision is way above my pay grade. <laughs> All I can tell you is the thought process is we're going to teach you diversified because it's easier. And then we'll teach you guys down the road. And the way the students see it is you taught us the cheap method before you taught us the real method. Why don't you teach us the real method and then let the people who aren't any good at it learn the cheap method. <laughs> and I was like, you know, that seems reasonable, but that's kind of where their thoughts are at uh, when it comes to that. Um, and so I've kind of thought the same thing. Like I would love to get a hold of students, as you mentioned, before they know what a spinous process is, before they know what all these things. I would like to get them before they know all that stuff that clutters up their brain, um, and just and just tell them, grab this, hold this, move here, do this, done, <laughs> and just real simple. We don't need all the details. I think that I think people would learn better that way, but I know that's very counterintuitive. So I know that most schools would be very hesitant. With thinking, well, how are you going to teach untrained people how to do this? So I totally get that way of thinking. But that's just kind of what I've seen is that by the time they get higher up in those classes, a lot of their stinking thinking gets in the way of getting the job done. Um, and, and you're right. They've, they've now been trained to create tension in everything instead of hunting for perfect neutrality where the surfaces are parallel and the joint is open and the patient relaxes. In fact, that's the thing we should talk about is the time, proper timing of an adjustment. Because I know, I'm sure you've done this as well, just as I have, where you set up on a patient and for whatever reason, it's not your best adjustment. It's really slow and it's underpowered and the thing goes boop, like butter. 
And you're like, the fact that I can move a bone with no power and no speed <laughs> tells me it can be done if you've got that perfect relaxation neutrality point. So teaching students to hunt for that. The, uh, I, I, I have, you're probably aware, I, I have Guns and Adjusting Academy is my, my program. No, I was going to talk uh, about that too. <laughs> the, the, theme, the theme that I, I have in Guns and Adjusting Academy is that relaxation, balance, and timing. That's the core. That, mm-hmm. that's, that's, that's the secret. Relaxation, balance, and timing. Yes. Yeah, so, so each one of those is, is a topic in and of itself. Relaxation, yeah. balance, and timing. So if I could just make a, a one, one point here about, about balance is uh, 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 you're the, the, when we adjust a patient, if we are thriving, uh, stri- striving, I should say, to push away or pull towards our center line and our abdomen, that's when we have, we're using the best mechanics. When we're pushing, uh, pushing across our body, like, like uh, pushing from my right shoulder towards my left shoulder, when we're pushing like that. That's 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 that lends itself to. I better have some really strong shoulders, some really strong pectoralis muscles, and and and, uh, and sooner or later somebody's going to get hurt. But when I push away from my abdomen or pull towards my abdomen, I'm using the best sense of, of leverage. I'll give you one one concept on this. It's center line imbalance. What I'm talking about. This this is a principle of athletics. Okay. So I'm a black belt in martial arts. I'm a very accomplished amateur dancer. I'm not a professional dancer by any means, but I've been dancing for 20 20 plus years. And I've taken lessons from many of the people you've seen on Dancing with the Stars. They were my teachers. And and the same fundamentals you teach in ballet and in ballroom dancing and in in baseball and in, uh, in, in martial arts, probably just about any other athletic event you can think about is your center line and your balance. When you're when you're when you're when you're when your center line in your body for chiropractic is the mid sagittal line and the balance point is the abdomen. So so I focus on keeping my contact hand around my abdomen and pushing away or pulling towards that. I think when you stay there, you're using the best leverages that you can have. So a small doctor can adjust a patient much bigger than them. A woman can can adjust. Uh, better than a man in a lot of cases because they, they don't have the natural strength that a man has and, 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 and the height as well. Uh, so they learn to use these leverages and mechanics, and, and it's really the key and the secret to it all. Center line and balance, and, and uh, so relaxation, balance, and timing is, is what I, I would say are, that, that's the core of, of the essence of, of being an artistic adjuster. Yeah, for me, my experience came from uh, football. And I played quarterback until I got to college and they moved me to free safety because um, they didn't know what to do with a really fast quarterback in those days. Now everybody loves one, but they didn't know what to do with it back then. So the mantra that I heard all the time, especially I played in an all-star game and it was constant over and over was any, when you come drop back to throw a pass, what they constantly are yelling at you is set your feet, set your feet, set your feet, set your feet. And a good pass is determined by your feet. Well, a good adjustment is also determined by your feet. So if you start thinking about your feet and where your feet are, um, I often will tell students where I place my feet and I know they're thinking, well, so what the, the, the exciting part's happening up here, but <laughs> no, I put my feet in a very particular spot when I do cervical adjusting and I do it relative to the chair. So I know exactly where I'm placed because I always have this mantra of set your feet, set your feet, set your feet. If they're set, then I'm stable, I'm balanced and I can have some power. If you're off balance, you have no power. That's why quarterbacks, if you can get a quarterback to throw off his back foot or when he's leaning away, he's going to throw the ball high and he's going to overthrow. 
every time because it alters right. your throw because you're off your balance. And so you've got to have your feet set and you've got to step into the pass and you've got to step into your adjustment, so to speak. I don't, you don't really need that kind of power for an adjustment. So you really don't have to step into it. You just have to be balanced and under control. Um, and I think that balance is probably something that very much gets neglected because it starts with doctor balance and then that turns into patient balance. Otherwise, I'm sure you see this too. The people who set up and the patient starts drifting, next thing you know, the patient's head is over by their stabilization elbow. And they're like, I'm ready. <laughs> like, no, you're not. That patient's about to fall out of their chair um, right. because they don't know how to get it. So it's you stabilized, then them stabilized, and then everything's good. So you're right. That's definitely a part that gets left out. Yeah. Yeah, absolutely. You know what's wonderful, Dave? I got to tell you, um, you and I have had never had a chance to really sit down like this and, and, and just share technique. I'm learning a lot just from listening to you. I, I am. Yeah, it works both ways. I, when I first got to school, they had me co-teach with Dr. Tomasello. Well, we're doing the same thing, but just the way he would say it or the different concepts, I was like, I'm stealing that, and I'm stealing that, and I'm stealing that. And so <laughs> it's true. When you start talking, it's like it's, it, the, the core, the meat doesn't change, but different people's perspectives or how they might communicate it does and it's like anything that helps it to get across to a student's brain and so i find that when I, especially when i do lecture i like to try to explain things several different ways so that people whatever resonates for them they'll understand the same concept yeah, um, yeah it's just it, it is interesting to see just how different people view it but the other thing is the confirmation that in the end we're all doing the same thing that's right yeah yeah and, and, and you know what so so that that you you use hit into another thing is that you know, there, there's there's variations that are acceptable in, 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 in our, the way we do technique. So in other words, I had the wonderful opportunity. I was a patient of Dr. Alex Cox for about 10 years uh, at the Gunston Seminar. And I'd, every time I'd go to the seminar, uh, which was three or four times a year, I'd go to Mount Horeb. Uh, I'd get adjusted two or three times a weekend by him. Uh, and then one weekend, I forgot to make an appointment with him. And, and uh, he was too busy to, to fit me into his calendar. So they said, but Dr. Doug can see you. So then I got the a chance to be adjusted by Dr. Doug. Uh, Richard Thornton was the most incredible adjuster I've ever, ever been adjusted by. I, I have to say that. And, uh, uh, but getting adjusted by Doug, getting adjusted by Alex, getting adjusted regularly by, by Richard Thornton. Uh, I also was interned with Dr. Herb Wood. Uh, he was an associate with Dr. Uh, Troxel. I was a patient of his, I was a patient of Larry Troxel. So, so when you, when you're a patient, you get adjusted by all these incredible doctors you might, if you watch Doug Cox do cervical chair and you watch anybody else do cervical chair, he does it different than anybody else. He has his hand, his contact thrusting hand over on his, his opposite hip. So if he's adjusting with his right hand, he has his hand, his adjusting hand over by his left hip. But when you watch him and feel him adjust, he adjusts just like Alex does. And Alex does it traditional. Uh, also, Bill Dressler. You watch Bill Dressler adjust. I mean, he's incredible. Yes. You know, fundamentally the most sound adjuster, and, 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 and you probably know this about Dr. Bill Dressler, but uh, in the last couple of years of Gunsid's life, he chose Bill Dressler to be his personal chiropractor. And when I heard this statement, he said the reason why Gunsid said he wanted Bill Dressler to be his personal chiropractor the last couple of years of his life was because he adjusted the most like him. When I heard that, I said, okay, Gunsid's dead. I don't have a chance to listen to Gunsid and learn from Gunsid, but I got in Bill Dressler's hip pocket, and a lot of things that I teach came directly from Bill Dressler, you mm -hmm. know, because, uh, you know, he, his, his mechanics and his leverage, I mean, the way he does the pull move, he, he pushes the leg so the body moves back on the table, 
and his hand goes forward, the lumbar pull move. Uh, when he explained it that way, he says, I said, well, that makes the most sense of anything else I've heard. And, and, and so you watch somebody else teach the lumbar pull move, and they'll show it a little different way. And it doesn't make it right or wrong. It's just a different, and I call it a variation. You know, yeah. so, you know, so, so variations are acceptable, uh, but the fundamentals of cervical chair, just talking about that, is fingertip contact, the patient seated, and the thrust is primarily P to A. Everything else is a variation. Mm-hmm. And then it's the pitfalls to avoid. Like we talked about before, you got to make sure your stabilization is A to P. If the elbow comes back, then you start going into rotation, and now your P to A turns into a, a, a rot- an initiation of rotation. And it's such a fine line. I see it with yeah. students all the time. Sometimes they set up, and you know the poseology we do in school. The setup looks beautiful. And I'm like, go ahead and give that a little force, and let me see where it goes. And as soon as they start putting some P to A, you watch that nose start coming around. It's like, I knew it. <laughs> I knew you were sitting too lateral. Um, and so I knew you didn't have it. You're absolutely right. So, so what I what I find is that when they watch somebody do it adjusting, and when I do personal coaching, I, I and they, they say I'm having trouble. I get these cervicals once in a while. I'll take a video of them straight on and watch their thrusting elbow. If their thrusting elbow goes away from their body, then they're turning the vertebra, and mm-hmm. so the thrusting arm needs to be held close to their body. So, so yeah, so so you can do a lot of coaching at a distance by by watching some videos. So you send me a video of you adjusting, and I want the and you show them how to position the camera so you get the exact right angle, and and then you can you can show them well this is what you're doing wrong. Even though they're making the vertebrae move, they're getting cavitation, but they're mm-hmm. thrusting lateral and medial, you know, on cervical chair. You thrust lateral and medial, you're 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 jamming the, the joints of Lushka. That's absurd. You know, you need to thrust straight forward. And I'm convinced those joints of Anushka will cavitate. And they they'll will. Fool you and you're doing a whole lot more than you think you're doing. Yeah, exactly. exactly. In fact, if you jam them too much, you're probably going to subluxate the vertebra below it. Because eventually something's got to give. Exactly. You're creating subluxations. It's like, you know, you know, setting a PI ilium on a push move and, and uh, pushing, pushing too much M to L, and you're going to create an EX. You know, bringing the knee up to the chest and pushing him down because that's what ended up happening. So you know that's that's dangerous. It's really it's really dangerous. Yeah, yeah. The other big thing, and this was something that I didn't even know existed, even though I went to lots of seminars, did my thing, I got into practice, didn't really realize this was an aspect. Slowly started to understand it, and then as I got better at it, people would ask me, and I'm like, I don't know how to explain it. <laughs> but it's the whole timing. Like I've, I've often said, there's two times you can give an adjustment. You can give the adjustment when the doctor's ready. Or you give the adjustment when the patient's ready. And I find that, especially in school, everybody's giving an adjustment when they're ready. And as you get better in practice, you start becoming more in tune with when the patient's ready. And this is something that um, Dr. Ian and I talked about a lot. And he shared with me, uh, I told him there was a particular video I used in one of my classes. And he said, well, one thing that's missing from that video, they edited it out because they thought it was boring, is he said, I held that kid's, <laughs> that kid's SP for probably 10 minutes because he had torticollis waiting for just the right time to make the adjustment. And he said, but all my staff were looking at the video going like, this is boring. You're just sitting there doing nothing. He's like, I'm not doing nothing. I'm getting it ready. And they're like, no, it's nothing. And they cut it out. So it's, um, it's understanding that, no, he wasn't doing nothing. He was getting that vertebra ready. And he had to feel for when it's just the right time to make this adjustment and get it snuck in there. And just um, two days ago, I had a patient um, fit that same category. And I must have held it for, I don't know, minutes because he had a very acute neck and I could barely even touch him initially. And I just had to hold it, get him used to my feeling, get him to relax. And then there came a point and then boom, we said it much better. So 
it's that whole timing issue. And we don't talk about it much, but really, especially with acute patients, it's probably the key to the whole thing is that proper timing. Right. So you hit on a pet peeve of mine, and, I, and, I, and you know, I, I'm, I'm glad you did because I think it's something we really need to talk about with our audience uh, with technique. I say when, when you see a doctor who, who relies on distraction techniques to adjust their patient, uh, you, you know that this, 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 this is not the way we should be doing it. Um, mm-hmm. So what are distraction techniques we use? The biggest one, the most common one, yeah, breathe in, breathe out. Okay, take a breath in. Let, yeah, and then the patient starts to anticipate. The first time you, you let their breath out and you slam them, one, because uh, that's, that's where you're at. You're, you're slamming chiropractor instead of a warm knife and butter. Um, so that's a distraction technique. Breathing, I, I, there, there's no place in, in, in adjusting for breathing. The other one is drop your shoulder down in the cervical chair. Okay, now let me just wiggle your hands a little bit before you thrust. I mean, all, all these things are distraction techniques, and, and dentists use those. They, they, they jiggle your mouth before they stab you with a needle, you know. Uh, mm-hmm. If you ask your dentist why do they do that, that well, it's just to distract you. Think about my finger jiggling your, your cheek, and then I'm going to stab you one, you know. <laughs> but, uh, you know, I, I just find that uh, these are pitfalls, and these are bad habits, and, and uh you know, I think the biggest thing in learning technique is that you you've got to you got to execute. You've got to get out there. You've got to practice it. You've got to give it some tries, and you're going to fail. You know, a, a few hundred times or so before you get your first really good quality adjustments. And sometimes they're quite by accident. The first few you get, because you're not really sure exactly what you did, but it worked. And then you you start to learn from that and say, well, gee, what did I do when that worked so well? Probably you just sort of snuck up on the patient slowly, building up a little bit of tension. And as soon as it stopped moving, then you gave it that impulse. That's that ramping. That's that building up of, of, of the pressure. And and I, I always think what Gans had preached to us so many times, we've heard this from 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 the, the Troxel program, from Gans's seminar, and from GMI. We've heard this in all the circles that we go to, is it is it uh, you know, think about adjusting P to A. If you focus on adjusting P to A, you're thrusting into the strongest ligament in the spine, that's the anterior longitudinal, and you just about can't hurt somebody if you thrust P to A, uh, if you focus on that. But if you start turning the vertebra, if you, you know, you, and especially in the cervicals, that's really a bad deal. In the lumbars, because the facets are sagittal, you know, that's how you blow a disc out in the lumbar spine is by turning the vertebra. But if you thrust P to A primarily, you're going to be in a really good spot. Yeah. Yeah, it really does make a huge difference in the, uh, yeah. and and getting that proper relaxation, also helps with that because when they're not relaxed, like take an acute patient for example, and you go to put, let's say you had a really acute patient, um, and you probably should have had them on a on a high low table pumping them because they were so tight, but you decided instead you're going to push them side posture, so you're going to make that push side posture. Maybe you can move it, maybe you can't, but let's say you can move it, but as you start to move it and you hit that restriction in the disc it's really easy to lose control and have it spin on you. You know what I'm talking about? Right. And it yes. starts doing that spinning thing. And now you're out of control and you just put a force in this that even though you knew what you needed to do, you're not actually able to do what you needed to do because you can't control that vertebra once it's set in motion and because of that resistance. And that's one of the reasons why we probably would put them on a high low or something. And we might pump them is to try to get some mobility in that joint so that we do have full control. And we're not just being a cowboy and going gung ho I'm just going to push this thing. Um, or a lot of times what I'll do is I'll pull it mainly because the pull move doesn't set nearly so deep. So I can get a good correction with a really fast thrust and just get a little bit out of it. And it's enough for them to start feeling better because I don't want to set that bone in full motion 
knowing that once it gets somewhere down the road, I might very well lose control of it and it ends up where I don't want it to go. And that's something we don't really think about, but that's kind of the rationale behind it. Right. Well, you know, you hit on something I think is very important, and that's something that doesn't get talked about enough in the chiropractic technique circles, and that is, is uh, you know, choosing the right way to adjust the patient. So, for instance, a lumbar. If you have a lumbar subluxation, say an L5, just to keep it simple, keep the conversation simple. If you had an L5 uh, listing, and whatever the listing was, you can, we've got four ways. Actually, we've got five ways we can adjust that lumbar vertebra, and which way you choose is a big part of your technique. So we've got the, the push, side posture push. We've got the side posture pull. We've got the knee chest. We've got the prone high-low. And we've got what's called the reverse finger push. That's where you put the patient down. It's a creative adjustment. It's an advanced adjustment. A little hesitant to talk this about without being able to demonstrate it in a, in a video. <laughs> uh, but instead of having a PRS right side down, we have the right side up for a pull. And we push lateral to medial. We just change the direction so that it's still the same direction. We just put the patient on the opposite side. Um, so we've got those five different ways to adjust. And, and uh, if you just said, first off, the, the ultimate table for adjusting P to A would be the, the knee chest, because that's, that's you know, no, no resistance. And then uh, a complement to that would be the high-low. So those two are just, adjustments are designed for P to A. Adjusting side posture, the push move is primarily designed for people your size and smaller, typically. That's a good thought process. It's a, a fundamental and, and for pushing the vertebra, again, P to A. The pull move is designed for speed and leverage. And when does that apply? It's when you need some speed and some leverage for a patient that's bigger than you, physically a bigger patient than you, uh, physical size, or, or if the patient is acute. And like you said, you need to get a quick adjustment so just, just to get the vertebra moving in the right direction. But you don't have the, the power in your fingertips that you have in your pisiform uh, to push P to A, so that, that means that the, the pull move is not going to be quite as effective for setting a vertebra P to A as the push. So you might start with the patient one way, say with the pull, to, to get the initial acute patient to get some movement in it, you get some progress, and, and then when you get to the pay, uh, a point later on, say they're around your size or smaller, now you can now you can adjust them on the side posture uh, move to the push move. So this doesn't get talked enough in, in our profession about in technique and and, uh, but I think that's, a, that's an important thing that we need to consider is which, which way do we choose to adjust the patient? Yeah, because they all have a time and place. There's a scenario where each one of those is the best move. And right. to really maximize, you got to know which one it is. Exactly. Yeah, well, thank you. This has been a great conversation. The hour flew by. Um, but I hope some people got some information have, as we talk technique like this. Um, I, I don't know about you, but when I teach it, I'm very... Um, I, to make it easier for the students, I'm very systematic and methodic. Um, and it's not because that's how I do it in practice. In practice, I'm not like robot man. But I just know that for them learning, they need um, <laughs> they need stepping stones. And so then there's even things like we could get into the debate of what is the proper position of the stabilization hand. If you look at the videos of Dr. Gonstead, he wraps the fingers behind. And there's a lot of people who do that. And so the students ask me, well, is that how you do stabilization? And I'm like, can you do it that way? Yes. Can you do it that way? No, because you don't know how to properly stabilize yet. So I really feel like within the technique, there's also stepping stone moments that as you learn how to properly support with stabilization, you can then have the variety of using different finger placements based on what you know you need. But initially, when you don't know what you need, you need to just make sure you've got stabilization. And so um, so I, 
that's why to me, uh, like a podcast scenario, it's very hard to go through those because it all depends on well, where are you at your point? Are you able to modify some and do different options? Or are you still learning the fundamentals that you talked about earlier? That really for students, it's all about fundamentals. And then from there, you can modify and do different things. Exactly. Yeah. So thank you very much. I appreciate you joining me. It's been awesome. And we'll definitely have to talk again soon. I will absolutely look forward to it. And thank you for the opportunity to be here. Appreciate you, it, Dave. You bet. Once again, I'd like to thank Dr. Curry for joining me today. Next week, Dr. Curry will be back to talk about something we rarely discuss on this podcast, and that is practice building. As we wrap up for this week, I'd like to leave you with a quote that's applicable to our discussion today. The quote goes like this, precision beats power and timing beats speed. Precision beats power and timing beats speed. That quote comes directly from the mouth of one Conor McGregor. As always, I hope you have the very best week possible, and I'll see you again next time. Thank <laughs> you.